some of you might be aware that we have a tradition in this church that whenever there's a really, really long scripture reading, I get it. So today we've got two long scripture readings. And I was a bit confused because when I saw that Peter Adamson was preaching um, a sermon titled A Tale of Two Houses, it sounded very Romeo and Juliet. And I'm thinking, you know, A Tale of Two Families. And um, I'm thinking we're reading from Shakespeare, but we're not. We're reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and then we're going to go into the book of Acts into um, chapter 15. So I'll start with uh, the scripture from 2 Samuel in your booklet, um, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And now we're going to go over to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15, and we're going from verses 6 down to 21, if any of you want to follow on your devices or in your Bibles. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Am I good to go sound-wise? Good to go, good. (laughs) Let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, may the words of my mouth and uh, the meditations of my heart uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, National history is um, defined by uh, momentous events. Uh, There's some irony standing up here um, this morning and uh, looking out on the audience and knowing that there's uh, quite a few Americans. You Americans celebrate Independence Day when you cast off the shackles of England and were victorious. By contrast, and here's where the irony comes in, Australians celebrate Anzac Day when the shackles imposed by Britain drew us into a humiliating defeat and a subsequent unprecedented loss of life on the Western Front. And for children, uh, sorry, for people uh, of my age, uh, that loss on the Western Front Uh, led to the Great Depression in Australia Uh, and my parents uh, were um, those children who grew up in the uh, Great Depression and uh, what is not commonly known is that that Great Depression was worse in Australia than any other country in the world because of the shackles that we still had uh, had to Britain but that's another story for another day. The grand story of the Bible records a meeting between Nathan 
the prophet and David the prince. That was a defining moment not only for America or Australia but actually for the world. We pick up the story of David when he is at the very top of his game. David gets it into his head that he will build a temple for God. That's what aspirational kings with succession planning in mind did in those days. The marketing or promotion of the king, I don't know that he had a PR department but um, he had certain people who looked after uh, his image. The marketing of the king focused on him being a son of the God that the nation worshipped. So when the God who was worshipped endorsed the king by giving him victory, wives and wealth, it was payback time, time to build a temple to cement the relationship. But the God whose big story the Bible contains is not like other gods who need their egos stoked. In a word, he does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands. He will not be in debt to David. In fact, David is and will be in debt to him. So, to cut a long story short, David, oh, sorry, God in effect refuses David's development application. Now, because we've limited time, and wherever Nathan is, there he is, I'm going to parachute you into the story that was read for us and it's there in the bulletin. The drop zone or the target is the second half of verse 11 if you've got your um, bulletins uh, open with you or you've got a tablet or device that you're reading from. The second half of verse 11 where God through the prophet Nathan says, <coughs> Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now David wanted to make God a house, a temple, and had just been put in his place. But God chooses this moment to raise the stakes and says he will build David a house. Same word. Hence the reference, to, I guess, to Romeo and Juliet, um, the fight between two houses, but this is not a fight. Worth asking the question, is God in the building business if he's going to build a house? Simple answer, no. What does God need a house for when he's already living in a palace? The simple solution is to recognise that God the Lord is talking about a dynasty, a succession plan for David. A simple illustration will help everyone. Sometime this week I heard it on television talk about Britain or for my purposes more correctly the United Kingdom with emphasis on the word kingdom and the house of Windsor. Hear those words? Kingdom and the house of Windsor. The Queen or whoever will succeed her in the near future will have to come from the house of the dynasty of Windsor, 
the dynasty who rules over the United Kingdom and which is tearing itself apart over Brexit. But that's another comment for another day. I want you to hear these words that go together even today. House, kingdom, and towards the end of that reading in, in 2 Samuel, the word throne. In a few minutes I'll tell you that God goes on to talk about his kingdom and David's throne. And there is just one, wording, one word that's missing in that whole collection. And not surprising, um, this is the third time I've stood up here and if you come back for a fourth time, you'll hear this word again. The word that's missing is covenant. But it's not actually missing because David's temple was, or the temple he was hoping to build if he hadn't had his development application rejected, was specifically to house the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember that on previous occasions when I've, when I've been here, I've talked about a, uh, uh, a metaphor um, that comes from um, uh, fishing. When you um, fillet a fish, um, you expose the um, skeleton of the fish and the skeleton gives uh, both uh, shape and uh, purpose or direction um, or structure. Um, to the fish. Well, uh, wherever you fillet the Bible, you'll find the covenant there. Like the skeleton that gives its story both support and shape. And what you're about to discover, if you hang with me over the next few minutes, is that when God speaks to David, this is yet another place that the covenant covenant idea is driving the revelation from God. The Lord, the God whose covenant I've been tracking with, says that he will build a dynasty for David that will be associated with his kingdom, and the word is repeated three times, with his kingdom forever. The word's there at the end of verse 13, if you're um, looking down in your bulletin, and it's there at the end of uh, verse 15, I think, and 14. God is going out on a limb at this point and in effect taking an oath that whatever happens from this point until the end of time as we know it, that is the forever word expressed in a sentence, there will be a dynastic successor of some sort, a king for want of a better word, connected with God's kingdom as opposed to the kingdoms of the world until the world as we know it is no more. My notes tell me that I need to repeat that sentence because it is not just majestic but magisterial, determinative for world history, as you'll find out in a few minutes, right down to today. And while it may be positioned about a third of the way through the Bible's grand story, it actually lays the foundation for everything that happens until the last page and the last words of the Bible. So let me say that sentence again. God makes a ramped up promise 
in, in fact, he takes an oath that whatever happens in the world from this moment going forward, there will be a great dynastic successor of David, someone king-like, who rules over God's kingdom as opposed to the other kingdoms or nations or geopolitical structures in the world, that someone will continue until world history as we know it is no more. That's what verse 13 says, even down to today. Now, I need to make an observation before going on. What has David done or been asked to do by God that results in this magisterial promise or oath? I'll let you into a secret. David is not a goody-goody. He's not squeaky clean. You know, when you get the glass out of the, the sink with the detergent on it and if it's a good glass you rub your finger around the rim of the glass and it begins to hum. Well that's a squeaky clean glass. Well David is not squeaky clean. He's not renowned for his faith and godliness. Contrary to the many stories we tell children or what you may have heard in your growing up days in churches. You and I both know now that he's applied for a development application to build a temple for God next to his fancy palace and been refused. God rejects his application. So it's not about him being meritorious. Does God look forward further into history and see all the good things David will do now that he has this gobsmacking promise? And ask me afterwards, but I reckon it's highly unlikely because David's life goes downhill from this moment. Adultery and murder with Bathsheba, who those who have been in church for a long time have heard about because it's all about lust going badly wrong. <coughs> but towering over the obsessive behaviour with Bathsheba is the equally obsessive behaviour that you don't hear about uh, because it has nothing to do with sex, where God causes the death, oh, sorry, David causes the death of 70,000 innocent people because he's fascinated by taking a census <coughs> that will reveal how great he is. So all I'm saying is that this is not a negotiation where God and David strike a, de a deal that depends on his faith and his godliness and him being, or having the potential at least, to be squeaky clean. Faith and godliness, while not unimportant, are not mentioned in this scene at all, nor is any reference made to them in the past or the future. God chooses David, who we're told in another place is a man over his own heart, but still just a man with flaws. 
and capable of choosing the wrong way in rebellion against God. Rather, this is God who calls Himself Lord at these moments, unfolding another aspect, another manifestation of uh, His covenant. I've said it before when I've been standing up here in previous occasions, but it's worth repeating it. If you can accept it, God's covenant is His commitment, even better, His promise, even better, His oath that sometime, somehow, He will restore some members of humanity into a relationship with Himself like that which Abraham had with Him, and ultimately to recreate the world without death, pain, frustration and alienation. Big definition? Well, all I need to add to that definition from these words is a few other words. God's covenant is His oath. His whole credibility rests on this, that sometime, somehow, He will restore some members of humanity from all nations into an Abraham-like relationship through the representative actions of a king-like figure so that the world will be without death, pain, frustration and alienation. Let me use my illustration from the last time and just take it to one further step. The covenant is uh, like a babushka doll, if you've not known what this is. This is my babushka doll. And as it unfolds in time, like a babushka that has uh, similarities but progressively smaller components or sections, the promise with David is yet another stage. Abraham... Moses, David, as the uh, covenant promise unfolds. And yes, I have got one in my hand and I'm going to put it in the pocket because that comes in a few moments' time. There's consistency in the development of the covenant promise, consistency like the image on the outside of the uh, Babushka doll um, is uh, the same, but hidden within those like the kids suck this one, <laughs> uh, hidden within the, um, the, uh, the original babushka is like the layers of a babushka, depth to that covenant promise like no one could ever imagine and it takes the telling of the story of the Bible for the various smaller dolls, smaller elements of the covenant or maybe more the heart of the covenant to be unfolded. Anyway, back to the drop zone. The drop zone with the knowledge that when we fill it the Bible at this point, the covenant is quite clear. Verses 12 and 13, if you're looking down uh, in the bulletin or on your tablet, says that David will die. His immediate dynastic successor in his house, a son, will build God's temple or house and begive, begin the forever kingdom of God. However, God is under no illusion that David's dynastic successes in the dynasty will be anything other than chips off the old block, the David block. 
Look what verse 14 says. Despite the richness and intimacy of a relationship with God, which can be described even at this point in the Bible (coughs) as that of a father with a son, it will all go badly and sadly wrong. The writing is on the wall. He and successive members of his dynasty will um, commit iniquity, which is the code word for incur, uh, is the sin incurred in idolatry. God said in the same breath that a king-like figure is coming who will change the world forever, that he knows full well that amongst David's successors there will be those who will commit iniquity and that he will have to punish, not moderately, but severely, which is implied in those phrases referring to discipline with rods and stripes. But, despite God foreseeing tragic idolatry and factoring it into what he says, into his oath, he reaffirms that the very heart of the covenant, what is repeatedly called steadfast love, those words are there in verse 15, will not be removed, unlike what God did to David's predecessor Saul. But that's again (coughs) another story for another day. Now it's time just for another little digression. What happens to the dynasty of David after his death? Those of you who have been in churches know pretty well Solomon's the dynastic successor and he astounds the world and builds a temple of renown, unsurpassed quality. But he's a closet idolater. He idolises or loves power and gets himself the best attack weapons of the day. Horses from Egypt to put in front of chariots because no man standing on the ground has any uh, chance of defending himself against horses in full gallop and men standing above him, standing in a chariot. Solomon loves status and he's addicted to lust. So he builds a harem with political alliances And he idolises and loves wealth and so gathers silver and gold so that in Jerusalem at the end of the Bronze Age, those metals, silver and gold, are more common than bronze. From that point on, David's dynastic successes are a tragedy that runs for 400 years. It leaves the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet (laughs) in the shade. And all the while, while that tragedy unfolds, God hangs on and sends prophets to remind the kings and the people of his promises and of his covenant. And he sends nations to punish them for idolatry, which too is a reminder of his covenant promise that those who don't obey will be punished. By the time you get to the end of three quarters of the Bible story, the end of your Old Testament, the visible symbols of a kingdom are removed when the temple is destroyed and the nation taken away into captivity 
in various stations. And all that is left is God's oath to David. So again, it's worth asking a question. Has God failed to live up to his covenant and is forever, that key word, contingent on the dynastic successors? Does it depend on wobbly men and women for it to come about? To answer that question, which the reminder of the Old Testament puts into words, let me take you again parachute you into these words. Verse 16. The last verse. What David hears is God's oath in different words but with the same scope. Your house, your dynasty, a king-like figure shall be made sure forever before me. (coughs) There is that scope and the same extent in time again. And the consequences for people, the idea of a throne from which the world is governed, not just Israel, will also be forever. (coughs) Now you can uh, overlook those last two sentences if you want, but they do come from the uh, mouth of the living Lord. God doesn't put on a fireworks show to show support for his covenant promise. He doesn't need to. He just says it and lets history do the talking. He lets history do the talking if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. My kids will be glad. I'm asking the question next, so what in 2019, November the 3rd? (coughs) Well, you may need to think of getting into a roller coaster and buckling up for a breathtaking ride. The rest of Old Testament history is like a roller coaster descent that takes your breath away and drives your heart into your mouth because things go so sadly wrong, as I've tried to outline. By the end of the Old Testament, David's dynastic successors are eating food provided for them in foreign countries, and the promised land, well, it's a wasteland. The gods whose revelation of himself had promised a new world with new people, <coughs> in a word, the forever covenant has only kept the downside of his promises. Choose idolatry, suffer the consequences. And even when some do return from exile to to the promised land, when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it's obvious that they've not learnt their lessons and become effectively dysfunctional and are overrun again and again and ultimately conquered by the Roman Empire. However... God's oath to David just won't go away. And its front and centre when men begin to tell the big story at a new point of time. The first words, the very first words of that part of of God's story that starts our New Testament, read like this. I didn't bother to get them printed in the bulletin. The beginning of Matthew's Gospel says just this. The book of the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Why mention those two block, uh, blokes in connection with Jesus? It is not, I repeat, not simply a matter connected with genealogy that can be traced backwards through David and back to Abraham. That's simply a superficial reading of Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Why do David and Abraham, and, or what do David, Abraham and Jesus have in common? They are connected by the covenant commitment of God to somehow, sometime, restore some members of humanity into a relationship with himself like Abraham had long ago. And again I'm saying that when you fill it, the New Testament, from the very first words, it exposes a skeleton that gives it shape and support. And Abraham, David and Jesus are connected by the idea that they are the big figures in the unfolding details of God's forever covenant. As Matthew tells his story of Jesus and the other gospel writers do, it's clear that he considers Jesus is the king-like figure that God had in mind when he foreshadowed our dynastic successor to David, whose kingdom and rule would be forever. The point is, to is a reminder to readers and listeners who have eyes to see and ears to hear that God is still tracking on the same path, still developing the scope and sequence of his covenant for the world. For anyone who follows the story, they'll learn a lot more about the sometime, somehow of God's covenant. Matthew is telling those with, eye, those with eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus is the dynastic successor of David that God had in mind when he talked of, of a kingdom that would last forever. Now you are in the roller coaster and uh, like all roller coasters it does take twists and turns. There is another defining moment that was read for us a few minutes ago. The history of the world is at a junction, a turning point in Acts chapter 15. The question is, will Jew, uh, Jesus just remain somebody for Jews or does he have significance for the whole world forever? And deba uh, debate rages and the only way to solve a debate is bring all the stakeholders together. And so all the stakeholders are brought together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And the stories are told of what's been happening amongst Jewish people who hear about their Messiah and then the Paul and Barnabas and surprisingly even Peter stand up and say, but, but uh, we're seeing people who have no Jewish background understanding that 
Previously, they were idolaters and now there was forgiveness and freedom and a relationship with God through God's appointed King Jesus. How are we going to reconcile this group, the Jewish group and the Gentile group? And in conclusion, James stands up and says, it's not exactly a eureka moment, but it comes pretty close to it in terms of the, of the Bible. He says, we ought to take notice of the Old Testament prophets and he quotes one of them, Amos, who's a long while after David. But notice the language that's used. I'll just repeat it and then I'll, I'll wrap up. James says, Jews and Gentiles around and through one king is what God intended all along. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 15, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. <clears throat> the tent of David is none other than the house of David, the dynastic succession. But James doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. God says, despite what has happened in that roller coaster, the downward slide through the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, I'm going to rebuild it, and I'm going to rebuild it through one man. And then these key words that take us, take, uh, have, sorry, have an application right down to this very minute. In order, David's fallen tent, I will rebuild in order that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. I'm looking, oh, probably almost exclusively at Gentiles. There may be a few people here with Jewish roots that's good but you're sitting in a church in Fremantle on the uh, 3rd of November 2019 because God has fulfilled his covenant promise his oath to a average sort of man called David that sometime, somehow, a remnant of humanity will have a relationship with God in which you can call God Father and you can be sons and daughters of the living God. And that's through a king that he's appointed that comes in a line from David. Sorry, but I think the story outdoes Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I think it's more exciting because it's, a, it's a, a consistent vision of God working, chipping away at this grand idea that somehow, sometime, people from all nations, America, Australia, whatever other nationalities are represented here, will be part of his family.
I've got two more parts of my bushka. Um, if you listen carefully, you can hear that there's one inside there, so I get the chance to unveil that the next time I come back. But I want to add that one to the story. Abraham, Moses, David. Jesus, you've got to come back next time to hear what the last one in the story is all about. Let me pray. <coughs> our Father and our God, uh, um, sometimes the Bible can be like um, uh, a recipe book and we go there for um, um, special texts to help us when we're feeling down. Um, please give us a vision of a big story uh, that wherever we fill it, wherever we um, uh, look closely, uh, it throws up abundant evidence for the fact that you're at work with a big plan that will draw people from all nations, uh, regardless of uh, their background, uh, regardless of the tragic stories of the past, regardless of what um, forms of idolatry they pursued because there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ our Lord and it's him that we serve in this world um, until he comes back again. Hear our prayer now.